Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women Today podcast. This week has seen some lively debate about everything from packing to poems, with a few considered thoughts about the emphasis on degrees and qualifications thrown in for good measure. But first, we were joined live in the studio by a truly incredible woman who just totally boulders over with her strength of character after everything that she's been through. Now, our guest this afternoon met her husband in 2009. They had their first date and married a year and a day later. Simone Heath, how did you know that when you met Chris that he was the one? I I don't know. I think you just have that that feeling that when you you meet somebody that they're like you, that your values and beliefs were all the same. And we just got on so well and he was so cheeky. It was impossible not to love him, really. And, you know, we got engaged... um, about four or five months after meeting and just just knew. I mean, that is, I suppose it could be classed as a whirlwind romance. What sort of reaction did you have from family and friends about it? They were all really, really delighted for us, Chris's family especially, because he'd been obviously very, very ill, so they were just delighted that he found somebody and wanted to marry. So it was inc- an incredible, incredible journey, really. So you knew when you first met Chris that he was ill? I, I did, yeah. And can you tell us what was wrong with him? He had a diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but he actually died from septicemia, um, which is obviously... we. I knew at some stage he wouldn't be with me forever, but I guess I, I, there was part of me that still thought I'd be, you know, 60, 70 in my rocking chair, crazy old lady with cats, you know, shouting at him in the garden. So it was, it was a huge shock, you know, something that you can't really put into words what happened I guess really and you you did look after him what what was that like it's 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 quite difficult because obviously you your husband and wife and then there's part of your role that becomes carers that you're looking after somebody's personal care as well but it never even occurred to me to not do it because he needed me and I wanted to make him as comfortable as possible and actually if me looking after him kept him out of hospital I'd, I'd do it again quite honestly well Chris died in October 2013 he was just 36 what do you remember about that time I think to be honest the first couple of months were a complete blur I think there was so many practical things that I had to do you know sorting out mortgages and funeral arrangements I think that actually kept me really occupied that I don't think I really thought about what had happened it's only really after everything was done I thought actually I am so lost I don't know what to do. I think that's when it it really, really hit home that he had gone. How do you even then begin to start the process of living again after going through all that? I I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I think it was just Chris, the way that Chris was, he was an incredibly strong person. He was incredibly brave. And even when he was really ill, he still had a smile on his face and would always ask everybody else how they were. He was he was never self-pitying. He was a bit of a, right, OK, so I'm ill, but I'm going to get on and do it. And I remember when he was first diagnosed before I met him, he went off to Egypt on a cruise because he thought, life, I'm not going to be defined by having cancer. I'm still a human being. I'm going to do all these amazing things, you know. And when we went on our honeymoon to Bali, he was ill. But he just said, I'm going. I'm not not doing life. You know, and that's I think that's something that's carried with me that you get one shot at this and you've got to make the absolute most of it. You either choose the path of being sad forever. You know, I, I don't proclaim that I'm happy every day because I'm not. You know, I've lost my best friend. That's 
hard to deal with but if you get one chance and if I get to the end and somebody goes right Simone you're going to die tomorrow and I haven't made the most out of my life what an absolute waste that is it's not going to happen <laughs> well Simone thank you so much for being with us this afternoon um, a little bit later we're going to be talking about a charity which supports men and women under the age of 50 who've lost their partner and I know in this situation that very often people say time is a, is a great healer and I just wonder if you have found that in in some respects I don't I will never ever forget Chris and I think I tried to fill the hole that was Chris and I think what I've realized actually you can't fill it you just learn to accept that it's there life is different and it's not the life I'd have chosen but it's okay and your life just takes on a different route and you know that they're they're always with you in your head and your heart and I couldn't couldn't forget him he was an absolute wally he was amazing so with me forever (laughs) Well, this afternoon we have been uh, speaking about what to do if something goes wrong health-wise on holiday. But now, uh, let's just talk about that other dreaded part of going away. And for some people, it starts days before you leave for the airport. It takes time, preparation, lists and possibly sitting on your suitcase. Uh, yeah, we're talking about packing. Are you a fan of packing, Dr John? I love packing. What's, What's the matter problem, with you? Beth? It's lovely. <sighs> it's it's yeah. such a satisfying thing to do. Not only packing your case, which is such an amazing thing. I go on these treks and I have to take a sort of hospital with me in a suitcase and there's usually only about a square foot left for my clothing. Getting all my clothing into that space is, is an art and it, it's, it's a thing that I dream about. I, I th- wake up in the morning thinking, how can I do this in the quickest and best way possible? Yeah, I love it. I'm not going quite that far, but I do love packing. I love it. It's amazing. You start with a list. It's nice and organised. and you can, It's a challenge. It's a puzzle. It's a bit like Tetris. Everything's got to fit in the right slot. And uh, yeah, I just think it's so satisfying. The problem is I absolutely hate unpacking. So Listeners, I'd leave a, a suitcase with two weeks of dirty clothes in. I do wish this was a television programme because the look on Beth's face at the moment, really, Kate, uh, Beth, you're obviously not a packing fan. No, I hate it. Absolutely hate it. And I think, you know, I'm not ever going to be one of those people who writes the lists and spends, you know, a week beforehand thinking, oh, there's my little pile of stuff to go in the case. Just chuck it in the case as close to the time that you're leaving as possible and don't even think about it. Mm. I have to say, I'm sitting here just wondering what's wrong with these two. There's something completely and utterly, uh, it, something gone out here. There's some, He's had some injection at some point that's, you know, um, made him go completely barking. Um, I, no, I, I, I'm the I'm the same as you. Actually, when we're this is good. without sounding too dodgy, when we both went away recently, um, let's be honest. When it comes to packing, um, especially you saw my case when it got uh, emptied out at Blackpool Airport by the security people um, there, and literally I just cram in so much. My problem is. Because I don't do any planning, and I never ever intend to do any planning with um, packing, I come back with a load of clean clothes because I take too much. Because, you know, oh, it might, well, jumper, well, it might be cold. Or, well, what if it's warm? Well, I need lots of t shirts as well. So I come back with lots of clean clothes, which means I can live out of the suitcase then for a couple of weeks afterwards. Um, Daff has sent us a text in saying, I'm still unpacking, worst part of the holidays, staggering amount of laundry after a family of four away for only five days. Do you know, my friend gave me a brilliant tip once, and it is the best thing ever. So you empty your suitcase when you come home from holiday into a big bag and you take it to the laundrette <laughs> not, not terribly good for your iphone or your cd collection <laughs> just everything doesn't matter everything oh it's just one of the best things ever i get very excited actually if we go on holiday and it has a washer dryer just saying <laughs> you really do need to go away don't you <laughs> i want to be like you when i grow up Beth. really um, <laughs> i've got a tip I've got a tip okay. about liquids, putting them in your suitcase. I read this in a magazine recently. If you're taking particularly suntan lotion or anything that's kind of a thick, creamy liquid, if you um, unscrew the lid and then put a 
bit of cling film over the top and then put the lid back on. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if there's a bit of pressure or anything or your bag no. gets moved around. It's not going to go everywhere. It's not going to go everywhere. You're nice, clean. I bet you fold as well. This is the real issue. I bet you fold your clothes instead of roll no, them. No, never, never no. fold. Never you should fold. Roll, roll, roll your clothes. Roll your clothes. Come on. <laughs> in fairness, when we awful. were walking around New- Newcastle, both of our clothes were so creased, I think we just literally obviously shoved them in the case. Yeah. Do you know, the thing I think about packing is that you can sit there and make all your lists, but usually you're never ever going to really apart from you Dr John go somewhere where you're not going to be able to find a shop to give you something if you've forgotten it I mean uh, case in point I forget something and I can either just come round to you Alex for mm, my toothpaste yep. or uh, go to the shop and get it the next day yep uh, that, that's the thing and not only that if you go away to the UK let's be honest there's a Primark somewhere you know it, it's cheaper than paying excess baggage half the time I um, bet you've got loads of like half used tubes of toothpaste though what a waste Beth what no that's waste. not because it'll get used at some point no because you it? keep forgetting it won't you so you'll never take it with you <laughs> Um is your suitcase full of medical supplies, Dr. John? Because I've seen Alex Brinley's and his um, first I, aid. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have a, I have a <laughs> nicely put. Um, I have a, a second wash bag that is completely um, full of uh, medicines whenever I go away. I mean, all your GP advice, you see, Dr. John, um, for a hypochondriac like me, it just sits there <laughs> playing on my mind at night. So I go away with full medical kits for everything, sort of eventuality. So surely you must be the same. Well, it depends. I mean, obviously, if I'm going on, on, on a job, then, then I'll take a, a suitcase with me with, with, with drugs in. Generally, otherwise, it tends to be half a pack of something that's usually about six months out of date. You're listening to Women Today on Manx Radio. And if you were listening to our discussion about smacking last week, or indeed you like the Women Today Facebook page, and why not if you don't, you may remember us mentioning a poem that a listener sent to us on that topic. Jan Allison only started writing last year, so we wanted to find out more about how she came to it and why she enjoys writing poetry so much. So we invited her up to the studio, and Kate, first of all, asked her to describe her style. I would describe my style as being totally unique. I started to write poetry and I was always writing in rhyme, but um, since I joined a site called Poetry Soup, I've discovered so many different types and styles of um, poetry. I'm happy to have a go at anything, but I do love to write with a sense of humour and uh, I do have the title now as Mistress of Mirth. Oh, the joys of an airport trolley. I try and push it. Oh, what a folly. The wheels always have a life of their own. I've not got off the ground. I just want to go home. It's interesting that your venture into poetry didn't necessarily start with, with humour. No, I'd never written a poem until until my husband was uh, diagnosed with cancer. In fact, I wrote my first poem, which was called Splendid Isolation, when we were over at Arrow Park Hospital on the Wirral. And Bob had gone in for his surgery and I felt so isolated, so alone. And I felt very, very vulnerable. And so the poem Splendid Isolation came about. During your husband's cancer, did you find comfort in writing? I found a... Comfort, yes, but also it was a release um, for me to be able to express my feelings. And starting to write has changed my life totally. I've got um, self-confidence I never had before. I've gone from ha- never having written a poem and since I was at school to having over 730 poems posted on the website, and that's only since February 2014. Uh, it's like um, creativity that I never knew existed. But the funny thing is that my aunt, who is 88, 
my uncle, who is 96, both write poetry. Uh, And I've discovered that my mum used to write poems as well. So it's um, a family thing, but it's only with my husband's cancer that it's, it's come out. Sometimes we all say things we don't mean, private thoughts to be kept inside that should never be seen. Then others join to be part of the scene. They use nasty words that are meant to demean. What do you normally write about then? I will write about anything and everything. I get a lot of inspiration on the site from the contests. Someone might post a picture or um, there's a few words that we have to use. But in general, I get inspiration from everything around me. I see the world in a different light now and I will um, come across a situation and ten minutes later a poem's come about as a result of that. The Bell of the Ball My dress is made of fine peach-coloured lace. Hair is in ringlets, which frames my pretty face. The lights in the room cast a romantic glow. My first ever ball, I must go with the flow. You also wrote, and and still write, about your dad. I do. It's been quite a journey for me the last 18 months. Um, Not only have I had to deal with Bob's cancer, but uh, in June, this uh, twenty. 14, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer and writing has been the saviour for me, basically. I don't think I would have got through without having an outlet. And it's not that I've been sad or depressed. I can write humorous poems at the drop of a hat, but it's just been something that's been... It was meant to be that I started to write when I did. The interesting thing is that I go through bouts of creativity. Two days before Dad was diagnosed with his cancer, I wrote 11 poems. Two days before he died, I wrote eight poems. And it seems that these bursts of creativity come so that it can sort of take me over a difficult period. Uh, It's really quite strange. Do you think your poetry helps other people who are going through difficult situations? Most definitely. Um, On the poetry site, people write comments and you write comments back to them. And it's so interesting that, um, especially with cancer, so many people, their lives have been touched by it. It, It's very, very therapeutic. It's very cathartic to write. Drip, 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 a silent puddle formed. Slowly, oh so gradually, over time, the wick decreased. Almost like your life was ebbing away, getting smaller and weaker every second, the candle flames started to dim. Flickering, dancing, flickering, dancing. I write at home alone, but one of the contests on the Poetry Soup site was to write with a collaboration. So back in March 2014, this contest came up and I thought, oh, I'll I'll ask this man who lived in England, Darren Watson, if he'd like to write with me. So I mailed him and I didn't get any reply. So I thought, oh, right, OK. So I asked somebody else, a, a man in Canada called Jack Ellison, and he said, yes, Jan, of course I'll write with you. So we wrote a poem called Cyber Sister and Brother, which was to go onto the contest page. Then a couple of days after I posted it, I got an email from Darren saying he'd been working abroad and yes, he'd love to write with me. And we penned a poem called Our First Meeting on the Isle of Man. The only alteration in the poem was in the first verse and it went on for about 13 verses and it just flowed so beautifully. We decided after that that we'd start our own webpage um, on Poetry Soup which is called Your Dazzle United. Uh, sadly, as I say, Darren's been 
quite ill for some time and writing's on hold. And the Lenny the Lizard, when I eventually turned that into a book, I would dedicate it to Darren. She flicked her tongue towards him and caught a tasty fly. Lenny was delighted that he'd caught this beauty's eye. He went and sidled next to her. She did undo his bow. Now no longer tongue-tied Lenny's words began to flow. That day they found true love on that mossy green stone. Lenny is thrilled with his life and no longer lives alone. I think it's fair to say that you you have come to writing a little bit later in life. Can you ever imagine putting down the pen now? Never. Do we put too much emphasis on exam qualifications and grades? Well, according to one of the UK's biggest graduate recruiters, we do. And it is going to remove all academic and education details from its trainee applications because it says it has found no evidence that success at university is correlated with professional achievement. And in a bid to boost workplace diversity, the accountancy firm Ernst & Young is going to instead choose which applicants to interview based on their performance in online tests. Now, until now, you needed the equivalent of three Bs at A-level and a 2-1 degree. Applicants are still going to be asked for their qualifications and education details, but none of this information is going to be available to the recruiters in the first round of interviews. So basically, they're going to be interviewing blind. So what we want to know is, do we put too much emphasis on qualifications and grades, Kate? I think we possibly do. I think it's... um, it's difficult because, of course, you have to be graded in some way at the end of school, at the end of university. People want to see if you, how you've done, how you've done in relationship to your peers. Um, I'll be honest that grading and education of grading is something that's always played to my strengths because I've never struggled with exam or revision or stress or anything like that. So I've always found that side of things quite easy but I do think once you are a bit older once you have a foot in the door at a job or a career it kind of doesn't matter anymore so it's that first bit of stress and the the pressure we put on it then that's the difficult part it's it's really interesting because you kind of think if it doesn't matter then what do we put ourselves through it for what is the actual point of it yeah I mean it's like GCSEs now isn't it where the coursework and they're taking that out and putting them back to just doing the exams perhaps and I do feel that you know Kate was talking obviously there about how she doesn't get nervous or stressed about exams and I really do really get stressed and don't sleep for weeks before because it eats up and I get very anxious about it so I've never performed I don't think at my best um, in exams so this style of interviewing would really suit me Um, because I'm a big fan of you know doing something like this and then looking at their experience looking at their character and the type of person that they are and whether they would suit that job as well and I think that this would go hand in hand with that. The point is you're still going to have to do um, some sort of test there is this online test which um, your application to the interview is going to be based on. Have you ever done one of those? They are so difficult that I actually think they are much harder personally I found them much more difficult than um, exams at school or at university or the logic questions and it's a real different way of isn't that but more real real life though because if you study something for an exam perspective you're studying from the book and you're gearing towards writing that exam because you're going to be tested on chapter five or six or whatever it is but in real life it might be chapter seven that you need the information for to actually solve that problem you're trying to solve um so maybe it is challenging at different levels. And if somebody makes it through one of those tests, they might be the better suited person, regardless of you know what the piece of paper says on the yeah. academic. And you definitely can't test for <coughs> skills, like Joe says about passion and enthusiasm, and something I think is really important um, 
and is a different part of intelligence is kind of power of persuasion of power of getting people on your side and power of getting people to agree with you and that's something that I don't think you test very well in, a, in exam situations but then isn't it if you are very academic and you are very good at exams you are very good at tests I mean this necessarily isn't necessarily the best way forward for you isn't it so, so at the at some level somebody's going to be missing out depending on, on what their sort of strengths are but then that's always a situation, isn't it? Because obviously if somebody is um, super intelligent but maybe doesn't have much of a character, then maybe they may not suit that certain job or, you know, if somebody doesn't have great qualifications, like I can speak from um, from my brother and from my ex from their point of view, they really didn't get any great grades at school at all and yet they are, they've done incredibly well in their careers and they're directors of big companies now and they've worked from the bottom and all their way up. They didn't have the qualifications for the job but they've worked hard to get to where they are. But then people have also worked incredibly hard to get their qualifications and I think we do run the risk of going oh well done you got a first but um yeah it doesn't matter it's it's not a big deal Mm, it comes down to that person on the day doesn't it and again who who also perhaps is interviewing them because you know what what they're looking for and what type of person are they looking for what character are they looking for and not just the actual education point of view it's really interesting isn't it that um, very often in these um, sort of conversations you use somebody I don't know like Richard Branson as an example who um, I don't think was terribly good academically but look at what he's achieved and we are joined today by Zach Hussain from Fuzzy Logic the CEO, CEO and founder of that company what do you look for then in people that you employ? Um, first and foremost, it's um, somebody who's got a background in in things that we do. So a background in software and a passion for software. Of course, it depends at what level we're trying to employ someone at. But it's somebody who has a passion for software and a passion for wanting to create something. Um, somebody who has the ability to learn stuff on their own and has proved that they do have that ability to learn stuff on their own. Um, because the, the industry that we're in is evolving so rapidly that there's no way what you learned three years ago. If you started a university degree, by the time you completed that university degree, half of it's obsolete. Um, and that's a scary thought that, you know, going out to the marketplace, you got a first, um, but half of it's kind of pointless because that technology doesn't exist anymore. Um, so we look for people that have a passion in doing what they do, have the ability to kind of wear multiple hats, because as a small company, we do we do ask a lot from people to kind of be able to do a bit of graphics, but be passionate about everything that you do. And that's the most important thing. Um, you have to have some knowledge about being able to figure stuff out um, and grasp con- concepts as well. But we look for people that can solve problems rather than find answers. I mean, I can solve problems. I'm not sure about any of the rest of it. The other week we were talking about CVs and if you actually put your weakness on a CV, uh, would you perhaps have the chance of being interviewed like I'm always late, for instance? Would you even consider a person if they put their weaknesses on the CVs? Um, It depends because sometimes when you're looking at a CV, you can look at it and go, yeah, these are just fullers. (laughs) Um, And you've got somebody who's putting some weaknesses in there because they want to try and level out your CV. Um, but if it's something that, that somebody is genuinely concerned about as a weakness, I would like for them to, to to put it down so that we know a number of things. Number one, we know that it's a weakness and something we can maybe help with. Uh, but number two, it also shows that they understand who they are. And they understand that um, although you need to have passion and, and positivity in everything that you do, you need to also realize where your weaknesses are so that you can, in a small organization, you can lean on people that have strengths where you might have weaknesses. And knowing that it's not so much that we need to know about it, it's more that they've identified that it's a weakness. 
And yeah, that does that does help. Well, we've had some uh, comments on this topic on uh, if, whether we put too much emphasis on grades and degree results on Facebook. And Carol says, yes, definitely. Far too much pressure is put on students' re-exams and especially top grades. Parents push too hard. Let your children find their own levels. Um, Emma says, <clears throat> sorry, when I was in school, the focus, was on gra- the focus on grades was terrifying. If you didn't pass with flying colours, you'd never excel in your career. I did quite well at GCSEs, but since starting work, I've never been asked about them ever. Any interview or business meeting or relationship building I've done through work is about my experience, passion and working skills in the industry. Any employer I've met wants enthusiasm, passion and hard work. You can't teach that at school, I guess. Starting out, grades are the perfect foundation to build on and do show that you have the work ethic. But in the long term, they become less relevant as your career builds anyway. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. Our guest this afternoon is the director of the One World Centre, which is based in St. John's. Now, the centre is a registered Manx charity which aims to encourage understanding and respect for the lives and cultures of all people. Rosemary Clark, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Can you ever imagine a time when you succeed in, in getting that understanding and respect? It would be lovely to be able to do that. I was doing a job like this in Milton Keynes and we had a strategy meeting and we decided that what we would like to do would be that in 20 years' time, do ourselves out of a job. Unfortunately, we ran out of the money before we could do ourselves out of the job and it's great to have the opportunity here to help people to really interact with each other and understand more about the wider world. But I'm still learning So I think it will be quite difficult to ever achieve our aims altogether. Let's talk a bit about you. You were brought up in Surrey. How aware were you as a family when you were growing up of things that were happening around the world? Not a lot. Um, It was a very white area. I remember there was a Polish man who lived along our road and we were always discouraged from talking to him. Now, I've no idea whether that was a racist thing or you know, whether he could have been a paedophile. I've absolutely no idea, and my parents are no longer here, so I can't ask them. And I didn't even meet somebody from another culture, I don't think, until at secondary school a Chinese girl joined in, what that would be year um, eight or nine, and, and that was the first person from another culture that I'd ever met. You know, things are so different today. So where did your interest then in supporting other cultures come from? I'm not sure I really know. Um, It's perhaps partly because the church I went to had missionaries who were out in other parts of the world. And so they would come back and they would tell us the stories of, of, of how they were living and what the problems were facing people. And then I've always been interested in geography. And that was the subject I went on to study at university and then on to teach. So, And the bit of geography that I enjoyed most was um, teaching about development And I can also remember, probably when I was about 13, our history teachers launched, um, must have been at the time of Biafra, which is a long time ago now, and she launched a new organisation called MAN, Massive Aid Now. And I can also remember at school knitting um, a vest for somebody, a Vietnamese child, in a kind of camouflage bottle green. So I think the interest has been there for a long while, and then it's been fanned as life's gone on. Well, you mentioned the fact you studied geography. You taught at a comprehensive for two years. But then you spent three years in Dorset, and as you say in your own words, helping people to enjoy their holidays. What were you doing? 
Well, I was what was called a social secretary in a guest house run by the Methodists, but for um, anybody from any background. Um, we could have up to 94 guests, and they ranged in age from tiny babies up to people who were well-retired, maybe in their 80s or 90s. And so I put together a programme of walks and coach excursions and, and through evening entertainments for them. I also got to sit and be served with the guests all the meals because it was up to me to get to know them, make them feel at home. So it was a really interesting job, but, but not exactly a career. Well, then you got involved with BBC School Radio. What is that and how did that come about? Well, to be honest, I knew it was time to move on from this job, even though it was in a beautiful place. And so I was applying for all kinds of things because, you know, if you've done geography, you've done a bit of teaching, you've been in tourism, you know, it's not really leading you anywhere. So I must have, I don't know how many jobs I applied for all over the country, um, anything that I thought might suit. And then it was a colleague who gave me this ad and they said, well, the BBC are looking for secretaries. Um, it says school radio. And I saw they were actually in the geography department. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I taught myself um, typing at evening classes on a heavy manual typewriter. Um, so I was invited for an interview. And I had to do a, a test. I'd done no shorthand at all. Um, I was supposed to be 40 words a minute on the typewriter and it was only 32 but um, then we were interviewed by three different producers and the one that I ended up with who was a geographer who had taught geography I think he could see that actually the job was far more than typing and that the skills and maybe partly my personality as well he thought we could work well together and indeed we could so it must have been an incredibly interesting time yeah and so very different and I think it's an encouragement to know that actually you don't have to always have one job. You know, you can go in different directions. You can, and I mean, I've had a really interesting life. But at many stages, when I was sort of thinking at a time of transition, I've no idea what I'm doing next. It wasn't always excitement and adventure. It was a lot of scaredness and wondering what was going to happen next. But I've come through it and I've had a fascinating time. Well, after the BBC School Radio, your life took a direction down the charity route. And I guess from what you've said about the sort of person that you are, that was quite a deliberate decision. Well, not exactly. I've been involved in, in charities you know, outside my work. And um, my mother was a treasurer for one and my brother was working for the same one. And I'd done a bit of um, volunteer work for them, helping them with audiovisual stuff. And um, then it was in 1991, after the first Gulf War, that particular charity was the first one to get in and help the Kurds. You probably won't remember, but they all went up into the mountains, into the freezing snow, and they needed help now. Um, and then after that charity had been there for six months, and obviously they'd been joined by a lot of other charities, they had to make the decision, have we finished our work, or is there more that we can do? Because that team had gone out for the emergency, but they were needed elsewhere. And so I was actually asked, would you like to go out and help with the administration of this project in Iraq? And because I was doing freelance work at the time, so I wasn't tied into any contract, I just sort of thought, oh, well, you know, this is a bit like increasing my freelance opportunities. And so I said yes, having no idea even what shelling meant, really, <laughs> until I met people at the airport who were coming out because the city I was going to had just been shelled. So, um, yeah, it was quite an interesting time. When you say interesting, it must have been terrifying at some point. 
actually it wasn't i think you you weigh the risks um you trust the organization that you're with and then you just go with it and i mean it, it was strange i can remember after i'd been there about a month it was november and the temperatures were beginning to drop but we were able to sit outside for a meeting in the rose garden having coffee and you're thinking this feels very bizarre but at the same time you always had to have a rucksack packed in case you had to go now and you always had to check underneath any vehicle to make sure that nobody put anything under it and we had armed guards so it was kind of like this really odd mixture of a huge welcome amongst the Kurds who whenever they saw us they could tell that we were there to help them um, and so they made life as kind and as helpful as they could for us um, so there was danger but really most of the time you just put it out of your mind and you know I was fine. You travelled to all sorts of places you went to Ethiopia as you mentioned Iraq Mozambique I wonder what you took away from those places emotionally. How long have you got? <laughs> I think you know I went to try and help other people but what I discovered was that it was a huge learning experience for me in so many ways and I think perhaps the the biggest one is that it's often those with the least who are the most generous and sometimes I think about myself and my own attitudes now and I'm challenged by by them and just a little example of that when I was in Iraq um, I was invited to go to a women's group and they they put together a proposal for a million pounds to build a training centre and they got these massive ideas but they had no experience at all and to be honest nobody was going to give them the money because you would need to start with something small and build up your capabilities um, because aid money has to be properly um, distributed and monitored so I went in and I looked at the plans and I, I said to them I'm, I'm really sorry but you know we're, we're not going to be able to help you I think you need to do something smaller so I went out without giving them anything and one of the ladies took this ring off her finger and thrust it on mine um, because she wanted to say thank you for the fact that I was there and caring and you know this it stayed on my finger ever since because it's a reminder to me of that generosity uh, not just of spirit but of actual wealth that was given to me. This is Women Today on Manx Radio with me, Beth Espy and Kate Holland. And our guest this afternoon is Simone Heath, who lost her husband, Chris, in 2013. He was just 36. Now, Simone, as a society, we are notoriously bad at dealing with difficult subjects like death. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you found that people reacted to you in those weeks and months after Chris died. I think, given what had happened, people were actually incredible. I think it's very, very difficult for people to actually know what to say, if I'm really, really honest. And I think no matter what they say, they will always say it wrong because they're meaning it absolutely, I really love you and I really want to support you, but they don't actually know what to say. So things like, oh, you know, keep your chin up. Chris wouldn't want you to be like that. All those kind of quite cliche things that people think they're being supportive and actually makes you want to want to headbutt them, to be honest. But you know that they're coming from a place of absolute... You know, we really care about you. It's, I don't think we're great, as you say, you know, at dealing with grief. We're a bit, oh, no, you know, we can't, we can't see tears. We don't want to see the emotions. But it's such a horrible roller coaster. You've, you've got to go through it in order to, you know, to hopefully get out the other end. 
like you say, I think we do worry so much about saying the wrong thing in this sort of situation. But is there a right thing, a right thing to say, a right thing to do when someone is bereaved? I actually think it's just to say, I actually don't know what to say to you. Just that, you know, that, that complete honesty and, you know, just people being there. I think the best things that people did for me was coming round and making me go out and, you know, taking me for a cup of tea and just making sure I was, you know, getting out into the world. Because it's quite easy to just say, actually, I don't want to go out. I don't want to eat any dinner. So people just keeping in touch in, you know, the first few weeks, first few months. But you still need that. Even now, you know, it's so supportive when people just say, how are you doing? You know, I know it's it, it has... I think two years seems like quite a long time to everybody else. And it is, you know, it seems like forever since Chris passed away. But it's still as painful and as raw as it was it was back then, really. And I guess you found yourself in, thank goodness, a fairly unique position in being so young and being widowed. Did you find that there was anybody that you could talk to who could truly understand what you were going through? Not... Not locally. Um, I remember after planning Chris's funeral and when all the practical things had been done, I remember sitting there one evening just thinking, this is it, this is my life, this is me on my own. I, I actually don't know what to do. And I remember sitting there and <laughs> putting into Google help for widows, <laughs> young widows, and pressing the return and up came widowedandyoung.org.uk and... I thought there's actually an organisation that's out there for people like me under the age of 50 who've been widowed and I don't think I can actually tell you how how relieved I was that there was going to be a, another group of people out there that you could talk to that would understand, that, you know, wouldn't judge you and no matter what you felt, how you were feeling, they'd just be, we get that, we've been there. And what was, I think, really amazing for me about Way was that there was people that their husbands, their partners had passed away around about the same time that, obviously, Chris had died. So you had that, I get that feeling because that's how I feel. But you also had people that were further down the line that would say, it gets better, it gets easier, and I promise you will, at some stage, this will, it will start to ease. And, you know, I thought, oh, no chance, what a load of rubbish. But now, obviously, nearly two two years down the line I can see actually they were they were right and it, it just gives you hope that all those people are out there saying just keep going and it doesn't matter what you do if all you do today is you get up that's a step forward if you get up today and you go to work amazing but just to keep living when actually inside I, I felt dead to be honest I'd lost in my best friend my husband I lost you know the whole purpose for me and Chris being together was just gone and you know you you can't you can't ever imagine how life will ever be normal again and it's you know it's not the normal I'd have chosen obviously but you know I get up and most of the time I'm normal she says with inverted commas as normal as I get you know but you've you've got to get on you get one go in life don't you and Chris would kick me up the bum if I sat crying too much so in terms of being widowed what do you think is is different about being widowed and young? I think it's just that you feel like you're losing out on so much of life. You know, thinking about what our future would have looked like, and there's oh, it's always quite a, a sort of an interesting discussion when people like Scylla Black passed away. There was a lot of discussion on on the way 
forum, you know, that, that everyone's going, oh, it's, you know, Scylla was so young. People are going, she's 72, I was 20 when I was widowed. You know, it's, I think the perspective, if you're thinking, I've got potentially another 50 years to live without Chris, that's, you know, that's quite a formidable thing to think about. But I think that's mostly how it feels, sort of being so young, really. And people talk about there being a, a sort of a process you have to go through when you're dealing with grief and you have the things like shock and anger and then there's a certain amount of guilt attached to it as mm. well have you found that you've gone through in inverted commas again a normal sort of grief process yeah I think all all the stages of you know that that grief curve I went through them you know at, at various times and I think just knowing that that's normal is okay it's when you start thinking oh if I'd have done this if I'd have said this all those sorts of things it's not it's not just me that feels that way and that's I think that's what's incredible about way that if I said these things you know on my Facebook page at the time people are being a bit <gasps> look what she's writing she's just gonna have a breakdown but when you say it to other people that get it you don't get that because they're going actually yeah I feel like that too and it's just that it's not just me so you found um, Widowed and Young Way, and um, you talked about, you mentioned forums there. What other sort of support does it provide? I think ma- mainly what um, Way su- provides, it's peer-to-peer support, so it's not counselling in any way. It's literally we all just support each other. All around the UK, um, they, they have little social groups so people get together and do things. There's not one on the Isle of Man, so I had online support really, so I used the Facebook page quite a lot and got to know a few widows really well and actually my my best friend now is a girl called Jenny that I met from Liverpool and do you know I don't know what I'd do without her to be really honest I'd I would be lost we've just I think people think two widows sitting together that'll be all tears and boo-hoo and think about you know persons that aren't present but actually you know we sit and talk about chocolate go and drink coffee go shopping far too much spend too much money you know it's a We've both lost our husbands and that's, you know, the only reason why we've met. But we've got a lot in common that when we're having rubbish days, we can support each other. And you cannot put a price on that at all. And you also wrote an article for The Way magazine. We did, yes. Um, I think just because everyone's, it's quite obvious that Jen and I have quite a, a strong friendship. And they just said, you know, would you fancy writing us an article? So we did. And that'll hopefully go in in September. So it's fame at last. Woohoo! <laughs> You are such an incredibly strong person, Simone, and and talking to you, it it seems inconceivable, really, what you've been through. Does it get easier to talk about? Yeah, a lot easier. When I think about, certainly when Chris first passed away, um, I couldn't talk about him without crying, but I think it just, you know, as time goes by, you learn to accept what's happened because you can't change it. And instead of thinking about what I've lost... I think about what I had that I think I was incredibly lucky to have found somebody that I loved as much as I loved Chris and because we knew he was ill we packed in so much stuff in you know the four and a half years we're together you know I'm surprised we we weren't in hospital from exhaustion (laughs) and you mentioned the fact obviously you met your best friend Jenny through way what about um here on the island and do you know of anybody who's in a similar position to you I I was actually put in contact with um, a gentleman called Mark Boyd, whose wife had passed away a couple of months before Chris had. Um, so I know that Mark's on, but I'm sure there's got to be other people in this in the same position who've lost partners. And I guess part of being here today is to see if there's any chance we can set up a local group, you know, see who else is out there. 
it's not it's not intended to be a sad thing it's about actually we can all support each other because we know how this feels if it's a coffee once a month you know and a chat or a drink down the pub great well if anybody um listening is in a similar position and, and they'd like the idea of setting up a support group over here if they just get in touch with us women today at maxradio.com and then we will put them in touch with you simone um but uh, you've also got a bit of a challenge coming up at the end of this month tell us about Yay! that we are doing the Cancer Research UK Relay for Life as a team. I'm doing it with my sister-in-law and some friends. There's 11 of us all together. And on the 29th of August, we are going to walk around the NSC for 24 hours. Of course you are. Absolutely. <laughs> it's when you actually say it out loud, you think, what am I doing? Crazy. I don't, I don't think it'd be so bad if you were walking around, you know, walking around the island or whatever, but w- one place. I mean, that's gonna get. I mean, it's going to be a bit dull. It is. I, I think I'm going to have to, you know, plant some animals or something. You know, oh, look, there's a rabbit. I'm worried you're going to get dizzy, Simone. Just going round and round and so round. So I'll, I'll be walking slowly, don't worry. There'll be no, no great speed on me. Um, and you're aiming to raise as much money as possible. I think you're hoping to get to £3,000. Um, again, we'll put the details for your Just Giving page um, on the Women Today Facebook page. But how do you train for something like this? Because, I mean, basically, you're going to be shattered. I think what we'll need to do is obviously split up the day and just make sure we're um, sort of spreading out the work. And there's also, at the same time as the relay happening, there's a big fun day down at the NSC from 12 till 8. So part of that is we're going to have a stall down there as well. So there'll be, you know, we'll have lots of interaction with the public and everyone that's down there and the rest of us can walk. So I think there'll be, there's going to be loads to keep us busy and they've got themed laps and things. I just can't wait to get the onesie out. And you've got a background in fundraising. How different is it doing doing this for somebody that was so close to you? It's it's completely different because obviously when you're fundraising, it's you've got a very professional head on you. When it's so personal, it's it's incredibly hard. So we did a bag pack in Peel recently, and people would give you a ten pound note and say, "Oh, you know, this is because my mum died, or I'm having chemotherapy." And I'd say, you know, thank you, I'm here because my husband died. And it's not often that I think of Chris. And it sounds like obviously he's passed away. I don't often think about him as not being here. Because when I talk about Chris, I'm thinking of the memories and recall and, you know, the fab times. So it's 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 very hard and quite an emotional journey. But it's, you know, you know that Cancer Research UK is an amazing charity and the research they do, if that means that in 30, 40 years time, less people are dying from cancer get on it people <laughs> and you uh you do have a team name i believe simone <laughs> we are called full mooners but Ooh. can i just can i just can i just say okay it's because on the night of the relay it's a full moon oh that's why that's of course. why of course. i was slightly worried for a little minute and <laughs> um, we have had a text in from somebody to say how nice to hear your guest today if only i'd heard her some years ago when i lost my partner so inspirational um we've been talking about way um widowed and young which is for people under 50 and as we said if anybody um in that category and i guess it doesn't matter how long ago the bereavement was if they're under 50 they no can if there's that age and also there's for people that are over 50 as well there's way up so that it's you know it's way as an organization is there for anybody who's lost somebody close and it doesn't have to be husband wife just partner thanks as always to our amazing guests and as ever it's never too late for you to get involved head over to facebook find the women today facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at mr women today on twitter and you can listen again to the full programs on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock 
Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.